Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalchristian.com. If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. What would you do? What would you do if, and this is a question that I want to ask you right now, if the world ended tomorrow, what would you do? I want you to think about this question over the next few minutes. I, I probably, it's just an assumption, I think we would tell our family and our friends how much we love them, right? Can I get an amen? No? Okay. Uh, I, I think maybe... Um, I, I've heard about this movie. I, I just don't go to movies. I pray eight hours a day. You know, I just don't got time for that stuff, you know. But uh, there's a movie called Signs. You remember, like, old school? Mel Gibson, aliens attacking. So the night before the world ends, they decide to, like, like make the biggest dinner. So they, they got bacon burgers. They got, for me, my personal favorite, all-time favorite. You've never had them. You're, like, you're missing out on life. It's Cracker Barrel Pancakes. There's nothing like it. Please go today. You will be blessed. You're welcome. But uh, uh, in, this, in this movie, they, like, they, they, they make like bacon burgers and pancakes and I think teriyaki chicken. Man, I might make myself a steak. I might gather a lot of money. Maybe we all get together here and we uh, hire someone to fly a helicopter down to Salt Lake City and get an In-N-Out burger. Can't get an amen to that. Right? Am I right? Okay. Um, I think there's a lot of different things that um, we do. I, to be honest, if I was a little cantankerous that day, I might fire off a little missive, a little email to Jerry Jones, thanking him for futility and uh, my irrational association with the Dallas Cowboys and all my Cowboys fans said amen. I don't know what we would do. I know some people, based on their uh, vision of the future, uh, because it's more dystopian, uh, they, they might just give up. Or if we're in Idaho, we might just get guns and ammunition and head up to the mountains. Who knows uh, what we would do if the world ended or we were told the world would end tomorrow. Martin Luther was asked this question. It was like an apocryphal moment. Uh, In other words, some people assume that Martin Luther was asked this question. If the world ended tomorrow, what would you do? And uh, his response is counterintuitive. He doesn't say he's going to make himself a a big bacon cheeseburger. He didn't say that, uh, uh, and I'm sure he loved his friends and his family, but he wasn't going to wish them love or whatever. He said he would plant a tree. The world ended tomorrow. His response was, I would plant a tree. It's funny, and, and I'll try to make sense of this. Um, For many of us, the large-scale Christian hope uh, envisions the end of the world as a literal, like, uh, annihilation of the space-time world, right? The ultimate, for many Christians, the ultimate destiny uh, for followers of Jesus is like this non-spatio, and we talk about this a lot, but it's important that we hear this. We assume the ultimate destiny of followers of Jesus is a non-spatio temporal existence, where we turn into like disembodied souls and we shine in, in eternity like, um, like glow sticks, right? Something like that. Or Rihanna's diamonds, right? We talk about that a lot. We just, we're, we're filled with luminosity and we're disembodied and we have like a different kind of existence. That's just a low-grade Gnosticism and that's not what the Bible teaches us. 
So when we come, and I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53, it kind of sets Martin Luther's response of, I would plant a tree, sets it within uh, the context of the large-scale Christian hope, which uh, I hope you know that as followers of Jesus, we're called to hope. We're summoned to be hopers. And so Paul, what he, what he does in 1 Corinthians 15, he's sketching out this eschatological scene. Uh, eschatology is, we've mentioned this before, we've defined it as God writing the story of world history. And so God will uh, join up every, every mess, every problem, all the sickness, all the suffering. He will bring healing to it. And God will have the last word over all of matter, over all of history, over all of time, over all of space, even over your dogs and your cats and your bodies, come on, and your brains, and, 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 okay? So Paul sketches this eschatological scene, and in it we have Jesus winning the final victory over death itself. Death, that we find in the New Testament, is the greatest anti-God, anti-creation force. And Paul kind of gives us this treatise in 1 Corinthians 15 that the cosmos, everyone say the cosmos, the cosmos is in need of a new exodus. It needs liberation. God's world has been, in other words, radically spoiled, polluted, defaced by evil and rebellion. And so Paul is talking about eschatology. In other words, he's talking about the future. He's talking about this forward look. Uh, He's essentially talking about hope. And our hope as Christians is not first heaven. It is ultimately new heavens and new earth. Here's the thing. If you remove eschatology, if you remove future uh, talk, if you remove hope and forward thinking from uh, Jesus from Christianity, uh, you, you try to do that, you try to boulderize all that stuff or remove it from following Jesus, you're left with a parody and not the reality. Christianity is first all about eschatology. It's all about a story. It's all about God moving world history to his intended final goal. And that, in, that, that final goal that we find throughout Scripture uh, is rooted in the fact that God is not committed to the annihilation of the cosmos. He's not going to take space and time and matter in our bodies and throw it into a trash, cosmic trash heap. What is he going to do? He's going to bring healing to our world. He's going to bring healing to our suffering and to our pain. And when we have new heavens and new earth, and in two weeks we're going to be talking about this, there will be no sorrow. There will be no tears. There will be no corruption. There will be no violence. There will be no suffering. There will be no traffic jams. There will be no cracks in the pavement. And there will certainly be no country music. Amen. A little bit of R&B? Yeah, come on. A little bit of hip-hop? A little bit of gospel? A little bit of Bach, Beethoven, classical, and tons of worship, but no country music. Lord have mercy. Why is this? Why, why will there be no corruption and violence and suffering? Well, because Jesus, and we'll read this here pretty quick, Jesus will do a loop de doo to death. He will dethrone it. He will defeat it. And he will reverse it back on itself. And the result of that is life and life more abundantly. And you actually have access to that right stinking now. Okay, I just want to make sure you're awake. So I use the word stinking, okay? So God, if he is radically committed to this world, um, 
Think about it. How many parents do we have here? As a parent, uh, we will not rest until the last traces, in the words of N.T. Wright, traces of illness have been removed from the child. So God will not tolerate the disease of sin and evil and entropy and correction or corruption within his world. So Paul sketches this and gives us a glimpse of the future, and he writes in verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall death come to pass the saying, or then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death! Where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58. Then Paul tells us, much like Martin Luther, here we have this vision of the future. This is where world history is, will end. It will end in the victory of Jesus over death and corruption and everything that is defaced God's beautiful world. And Jesus will be the king of it all. Therefore, because of that future, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor Right now in the present. Everyone say the present. So what you're doing right now, what you did this last week, what you're going to do over the next few weeks as you prepare your heart in worship, in serving people, in studying the scripture, in raising your babies who don't want to listen to you and sometimes you want to cry yourself to sleep, right? Or whatever, as you serve and build for the kingdom of Jesus, your labor, your worship, your loving your building for God's kingdom is not in vain. It is not worthless. Why? Well, because what you do in this world matters. And this is why Martin Luther apocryphally, right, was said to answer the question of if the world ended tomorrow, I would plant a tree. I would even add, let's garden. I would even add, let's pick up a new hobby. I would add, let's pick up maybe even fresh vocation, fresh tasks, because what we do in the present, what we do Monday through Sunday, what we do in the now matters. It will not, it will not be wasted. Your cooking for Jesus is not going to be wasted. We do everything under the Lord. Our going to school will not be wasted. Are playing sports, building buildings, thinking about architecture, design, fashion, whatever. All those things will not be wasted. They will carry into God's new world. That, I don't know about you, but that's really exciting for me. Okay, apparently no for many of us. So this is the future. This is where God is taking creation Towards, But this last, the last several weeks, and I want to thank Pastor Ken for uh, teaching last Sunday for me. Can you thank Pastor Ken? (laughs) 
I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be pol- uh, political here, uh, but thinking about, again, two weeks ago with Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford and a lot of the confusion, um, I do have strong opinions. I'm sure you do have, you guys have strong opinions. Thankfully, there's no uh, book in the Bible called First and Second Opinions. <laughs> it's a bad dad joke, okay? Uh, you don't need my opinion. I don't need your opinion. Right? Obviously, we want to go to God's word, and I think there are better responses than others to what's happening in our nation, in our country, but it does feel like our nation right now needs an exorcism. So if you look at yourself on the spectrum, maybe some of you, maybe half of you are with Dr. Ford, and maybe half of you are with um, uh, Kavanaugh and whatever. Um, I, I'm not trying to alienate any of you. What I'm trying to say is what I felt like a week and a half ago is this. And this is what I told myself. This is not what God's world is supposed to be. This is not what God's world is supposed to be. Uh, In fact, there are some people in our world, maybe even some Christians, have fallen prey to this idea that, um, man, everything's a joke. Really, is there any meaning? I'm sure all of us, again, we all exist on a spectrum, have maybe thought through um, the concept of meaninglessness. For example, there was an artist in England, I can't remember his name, this last week, who had a painting, and his painting was sold for over a million dollars. If you heard about this, right after the auctioneer took his gavel and pounded his desk, the painting self-destructed in front of everybody's eyes. Like it's a joke. And many people think that this world is kind of like that. Is this a big cosmic joke? Is there meaning? Maybe some of you can relate to this one particular woman. She lived in, I think, maybe the first part of the 20th century, and she offered this prayer to God. She was living in the ghetto, and she shouted to God. And she said this, Almighty God, maker of the universe, you get back down here where you belong, and you tend to your business. Have you ever felt that before? I mean, I disagree with her cosmology. I don't think there's an upstairs-downstairs thing. I don't think God's way out there, and he's radically detached from where we are, which is way down here. We believe that heaven and earth overlap, and heaven is is intersecting in different points in our lives in an invisible way. My boys call it camouflage. You can't see it, but God is at work, and he is intimately involved in our lives. So we have a good future. Can I get an amen? And God's summoning his people. God is summoning us in an age of disillusionment, in an age of cynicism, in an age where people are just by default skeptical of institutions and Wells Fargo and Uber and Facebook and all these institutions that have left us with much to be desired. In this age of skepticism, I'm telling you, God is calling his people to show the world what hope is all about. We're called, we're called to be hopers. I want to quickly go to Hebrews chapter 11. Before I read this, uh, let me just say this about hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope, in the words of C.S. Lewis, is not moonshine. Right? It's, not, it's not whistling in the dark. It's, hope is not a form of escapism where we deny our circumstances. Hope, actually, in the words of, of one scholar, is it deals, in his words, it deals with the most meaningful things in our lives. 
Hope deals with life and death and space and time and our family and our bodies and our DNA and eternity. I don't know if you know this, but God has placed eternity and the life of the age to come in your heart. You feel it every single day. In fact, we are haunted by transcendence. We are haunted by eternity. We are haunted by God's beauty. So hope is not wishful thinking. It's not like I hope the Cowboys win today. Or I hope someone gives me free food today. Or I hope, I hope I make it as if you're not going to make it, but you just hope you're going to make it. That's not hope. Let me just say one other word before we read Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Hope is biological. In fact, we are biologically wired for hope. In fact, social scientists, doctors will tell you, neuropsychologists will tell you that hope actually strengthens our immune system. You build up, hopers build up tolerance, enormous tolerance uh, that wards off sickness and disease. Health, health benefits uh, related to hoping are huge. In other words, as humans, we are prepared and designed for hope. I woke up this morning hoping that you would listen to this message and that you would say a little bit more amens. I, 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 I woke up this morning believing that God has a great plan still, not only for our church, but for every family in this room. I woke up this morning believing that God can still move in our nation. I woke up this morning, and I probably didn't think through like new heavens, new earth, and abstracted or extrapolated into the future and tried to like figure out what the new heavens and new earth look like. But deep down in my bones, I woke up with hope. Like hope is the engine. Hope and meaning are the engine of what it means to live a genuine human life. If you lose hope, you lose everything. In fact, we have um, a a study, and this is about 60, 70 years ago. There was a man named Victor Frankl. He was um, a psychiatrist, Jewish psychiatrist, and he was in World War II. He was placed in a concentration camp. Concentration camp would be just uh, all the suffering right, drawn to its head, and he described the the horrific details of what these prisoners experienced. And as a psychiatrist, he observed four different kinds of people. And these people uh, had hope, but they ended up uh, essentially losing their hope. And uh, one group of prisoners who lost their hope became brutal, turned brutal, actually began to reflect the guards and the soldiers that tortured them and reflected that back onto fellow prisoners. He also saw, in the case of his best friend, his best friend eventually gave up on his hope, and he eventually died. Others committed suicide. So there are those who, in this concentration camp, became brutal. Some gave up on life. Others, even though they didn't take their life, they suspended normal operations of being human. They just thought, okay, I just got to grit my teeth. I got to bear through this. I can't... love. I can't, I can't have meaning. Uh, I can't serve. I can't help. Um, I, I can't truly be human. And then there was this last group. This last group, they maintained their hope and they maintained their dignity and their humanity. He did say, and these are the words, it's kind of a paraphrase of what he said, isn't it funny how suffering strips our moral foundations bare and shows us what really sustains us. And you find this in the words of Victor 
Frankel in this concentration camp what people really place their hope in. And his conclusion, those people that kept their hope, kept their dignity, kept their humanity, what it meant to be human, were those who had a spiritual reference point. They had a bigger story than themselves. They had something larger than themselves. They had God. They had something they could see, imagine into the future that kept them going. You see, here's the thing. We, we all hope. Uh, the problem is, is many times our hopes are misguided. So we place our hope in secondary things. We place our hope in things that are transient, things that change, things that fade. I feel so sorry for my wife. She, she just left. But uh, my wife, uh, we, we looked at some pictures about 15, 12 years ago when we were first married. She just keeps on getting more beautiful and more gorgeous, and it's a little bit unfair. She's glowing like a glow stick, right? She's just, oh, my God, you are amazing. You are a babe, babe, right? And I look back at these pictures, and I see myself 12 years ago, and I look at myself, and it's like, I'm fading. Sorry, babe. <laughs> like, I hope you don't place your hope in, I know I was a, I was a looker 12 years ago, but not so much anymore, okay? Um, if you place your hope even in the best, in the words of C.S. Lewis, even in the best possible marriages, even in the best possible vacation, even, even in status, even if your job is like the, your dream job, just so you know, it will eventually, all of it, even your kids, all of it will fade away. And Franco, what he deciphered is that those who lost hope had placed their hope on secondary things. So my question here today is, what's your hope in? Are you just kind of wishing, hoping that you make it? Is, is your hope really in, like, my family's doing well? Is your hope tethered to circumstances? Like, and, and so you're almost like a roller coaster. Like, on the good days, you're like, man, and like yesterday, wasn't yesterday a beautiful day? Come on, the wind and the trees and the leaves sunshine, birds, okay, no, all right. Um, here's the thing. If you base or predicate your hope on good days, that's great, but what happens when you have bad days? What happens when you have things that are out, lie outside of your control that go against your wishes or your preferred future? What, what, what do you do in that situation? Well, um, Hebrews chapter 11 gives us the answer tells us that uh, the Christian hope is not moonshine. It's not wishful thinking. It's not whistling in the dark. It's not a form of escapism. And here's the thing. There are two responses to uh, transient hope, placing your hope in a romance, placing your hope in like, man, if I could just get that outfit, my life will be complete. If I could just get that vacation, my life will be complete. Uh, there are two responses. There are some people, according to C.S. Lewis, that will respond with blaming the things themselves. Like there are some people that go from continent to continent trying to find a better marriage, trying to find a better vacation, trying to find a better experience, and it's always going to fade in reality. It's always going to evade. It's always going to be incomplete. And then you have another group of people where they're just like, hey, it's just all moonshine. It's like all that reach for the stars Disneyland talk. We're older now. We're wiser. I'm going to manage my expectations because this world, it's a mess. 
so I'm not going to hope. I'm going to manage my expectations as a form of defense. I'm going to protect my heart. Well, both those responses to transient hope uh, is not something that's in line with our Christian hope. Our Christian hope, the large-scale Christian hope as followers of Jesus, is rooted, what we find in Hebrews chapter 11, in God himself. And we begin in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and the author of Hebrews writes, Now faith is the assurance, could you say assurance, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. For by it, now it's hope, now faith and hope are the inside and the outside of the same thing, right? The two different aspects of our response, our proper response to God. In verse 2, for by it the people of old received uh, their approval. And then verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let me just say this really quick. Our hope is rooted in the power of creation itself. The author of Hebrews is saying every promise that God gives to his sons and his daughters, everything that we find in Scripture and what the Holy Spirit speaks to us is backed up by the power of creation itself. So how you know how God created the constellations, right? Neutrons, electrons, the subatomic world, right? All, all the supernovas and the galaxies, all that power that God exercised through his word backs up every promise that God gives you. In fact, we have this beautiful text in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We quote it all the time. The promises of God are yes and amen. Not like yes and maybe or no and somewhat, or no, no, it's yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. Your God is faithful. Your God is trustworthy. Your God, he speaks his word, and he backs it up with his power. And then we come to verse 6, and we'll skip just a few verses. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Must believe. Here today, our hope is rooted, inextricably bound up with the belief that God is not a cosmic gas. That God is not some indifferent deity that lives way up in the sky. We, don't, we reject this upstairs, downstairs way of seeing the cosmos. No, we believe that our God is personally involved in our lives. And that he loves us and that he's at work in us. And you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then by faith, I want you to check this out. So hope is tethered with faith and faith is trusting God for every single promise, trusting God for every single aspect of your life. Hope, again, is intimately related to faith and Hoping or hope is trusting God for the future. Let me just, and I want you to think about this as we read through just a few more verses. When it comes to our vision, our vision of the future always alters the fundamental structure of our present reality. If you want to know how to live, how now shall we live is the question that many, many people are asking themselves in this messy world, in this messy political landscape. How 
do we behave? How do we be faithful as Christians? It's all connected to how we see the future. How you hope, how you see God's future world alters fundamentally the way you live, the way you behave, and your present reality. So I want you to see this. It's fleshed out in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went into, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. His looking into the future altered his behavior, the way he lived, his obedience, his serving, his loving. By faith, we continue, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man in him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That word greet uh, in the Greek simply means to embrace. Do we have any huggers here? You like to hug? I want you right now, let's do a thought experiment. I want you to imagine right now, if you want to be a hoper and God is summoning us to hope, to be a Christian is the hope that you have to embrace. You got to take your hands and you have to Hug the promise of God, that God really has a future for you. That this is not just a cliche, but that God's best for you is in front of you. It's not behind you. That even though you're going through maybe a difficult season, if you can embrace the promises of God, if you can receive the assurance that God is at personally, radically, and personally involved in your life, you can negotiate the difficulties and the suffering and the problems that we experience every single day. And then he continues, for people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. That's hope. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As we close this part, we're going to flip down to or go down to verse 30-something, verse 32. And the author of chapter 11 here continues, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of, of Barak, of Samson. Samson had his problems, right? Jephthah, he had his problems. Of David and Samuel and the prophets. They were hopers who through faith, this is what happened, because they hoped and they believed the promise of God and they believed that God was at work, radically at work in their lives and that he had a future for them, who through faith and hope conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong, this is my personal favorite, were made strong out of weakness. 
became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, but I love this part, we end here, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Do you notice something here? It's hope that alters and transforms how we live in the present. Out of weakness, they were made strong. Miracles are connected. Are we alive this morning? Miracles are connected to God's assurance that he is at work in us. And God is summoning us in this world of cynicism to hope and to keep our eyes fixed on the future. So, so Chris, I, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I get about new heavens and new earth. Next week, we're going to be talking about hope in heaven. And the following week, we're going to end in Revelation 21 and 22 and talk about new heavens and new earth. But you might be asking, how do I activate hope in my life, right? How do I, how do I make hoping a practical reality like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Lest we make hope like an abstract exercise where we're just kind of extrapolating the future and trying to think about like what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. And I think we should do that. The most important thing about hope is that it's personal. And we find it, and we're not going to read it, but in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let me just say this really quick. Hoping is not an abstract intellectual exercise per se. Hope is just committing radically Committing yourself to looking at Jesus every single day. No matter what's going on, no matter what you're feeling, no matter what you're seeing with your eyes, no matter what's happening culturally or politically, your eyes are fixed on Jesus. In fact, um, what we find in the New Testament, it's pervasive in the New Testament. It's a declaration or an anthem in the New Testament that through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, that God's future world has already arrived. And this is why Jesus, throughout his ministry, as he was dialoguing with the religious aristocracy, kept on insisting that the kingdom of God or God's future world was in their grasp. Jesus kept on going around saying, "It's, it's here. You can grasp it. You can taste it. You can touch it. It's tactile. The kingdom of God is not somewhere out there. God's future has dramatically broken in through my ministry. Taste it. Touch it. Grasp it. All the forgiveness, all the hope, all the grace, all the power, all the strength, everything that you need is right in front of your eyes. It's right there. And it's as if Jesus is saying with a sense of urgency, and you can feel it as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that please, in the words of Jesus, and I'm riffing off of the words of Jesus, please don't miss God's future. 
It's in your grasp, meaning we'll say it's radically self-involving. If you just simply open your heart, like right now, like right now, check this out. Like right now, God's future is open for you. You just have to open up your heart. You just got to get your eyes focused on Jesus. And here's the good news. Let Jesus do the work of healing in you. Let him come in and give you fresh hope and fresh strength. Amen. This is not just one talk that we're going to be, you know, we'll just put in the podcast archives and we'll forget about it. This message of hope, we're going to be, this is the next season of church and in our world, it's going to get, it's going to get crazier, but I'm not worried about that because I'm a hoper. I know even though the world is going to get a little bit crazy, that God is going to do a great thing in our nation and God's going to do a great thing in our city and God's going to do a great thing in our church. I fundamentally believe that. So this is a message we're going to be talking about and I want you to hear me. I want, I want you to feel the summons of heaven right now that God is drawing you out, calling you out, pulling you out of maybe some of you, out of your despair, out of maybe placing your hope in wrong things, misguided things. And that God is saying, I just want you to put your trust in me. I promise. My promises are rock solid. Like, and essentially, I'm, God is saying to us today, I'm bringing all the power of creation, all the power of the stars, all the power that I made in, uh, in relation to the constellations, all that power I'm backing up my promise with. And it's for you. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.